Hey everybody, happy new year and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Of the entire past decade, what was the most influential bike or bike part? What was the best bike or component of the past 10 years? What were the biggest gear trends? And if you had to single out a best product of the decade, what would that selection be? We cover all of this and more with our own Noah Bodman and David Golay. And in the comments section of the show notes to this episode on the Blister website, we'd love to hear what you think was the most influential or best gear of the past decade and why. But first, we're going to hear what Noah Bodman and David Golay have to say on these subjects. And so, here we go. Well, first of all, I want to say Happy New Year to both Noah and David. And then second, I want to take a second and just savor, you know, this really historical moment where we have, for the first time ever, the great David Golay and the very highly esteemed Noah Bodman on a podcast together. It's really something else. Gentlemen, I invite you to savor this moment with me. I, I am savoring it so hard. <laughs> Very much so. Cool. Um, okay, your mission today, maybe not the simplest mission, but it's, I think, a fairly clear one. Um, it's time to assess, you know, basically just the last 20 years of bike gear and bike gear history. No big deal. But, you know, who more is up to the task than the likes of you two powerhouses? <laughs> we'll do our best, Jack. Okay. Yeah. I'm just yeah. trying to, you know, you just trying to be a hype man here to get you, you know, get the creative juices flowing and the rest. And I, I do actually think this is a somewhat daunting task. There probably will be quite a range of potential opinions to the answers to these questions. And, um, you know, we'll see how kind or unkind our audience is with your answers. So with that said, let's go ahead and start not with this most recent decade, the one before. So I'm interested in 2000 to 2009. So we'll get kind of a running start here before we get to the last decade. What would your assessments be for the most influential bike or bike component of the 2000s, by which we mean 2000 to 2009. Noah? You know, I, I kind of struggled with this one. Um, and, you know, honestly, the thing that's sitting at the top of my list is the Maxxis DHF, because it's the only part that I can think of that came out in that decade and is still good today. Like, you know, like half the bikes on the market are coming with a DHF on the front. And that thing came out in, I don't know, like 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. 
and you know what other component on the market is still going strong in more or less its original form like yeah the dhf has been tweaked a little bit and different casings and that sort of thing but but that you know max has kind of hit it out of the park with that thing um beyond that i i think a, a couple of things on my list are, are a lot more general like disc brakes didn't i mean they existed prior to 2000 they were around but they were you know you found them on downhill bikes they were kind of rare they weren't all that common they kind of sucked and so yeah during 2000 2009 like disc brakes actually became standard equipment we got rid of brake posts on frames uh, you know it just opened up all kinds of possibilities with suspension designs not to mention they stop better and they work when they're wet um so yeah that, that's what i had for components i i mean there's so many other things during that decade that you could call out but those are the two that popped out at the front of my brain david yeah so i have three things written down here uh as far as bikes go one of the things that I was thinking about a lot in response to this question was, I think that a really big trend of this most recent decade, 2010 to 2019, has been the proliferation of kind of mid-travel enduro bikes that are super, super capable descending, but also still pedal pretty well and are really happy climbing. And I was thinking a lot about where I kind of thought for the early 2000s, where there was sort of what bike was that really first starting to come together on well. And definitely there were mid-travel bikes that existed way before this. But the thing that jumped out at me as being kind of the OG enduro bike as we think of it today was the... 2005 specialized enduro which was kind of it wasn't the first version of the enduro but it was the first one where it really felt like it was a purpose-built bike for that type of riding as opposed to being kind of a longer travel thing based on more of a cross-country-ish bike and so that and it wasn't necessarily exactly the first bike to do that but it was super early in being a bike in that vein from a really big manufacturer that they sold a billion of and just reached a ton of people and really helped push that forward. So that felt like a big one for me. The second thing I have written down as my second place option, Enduro being the third place, was the Gravity Dropper, which was the first thing that really looked like a modern dropper post as we know it. And that came out in the early 2000s, and I don't know that they sold a ton of them, but a decent number, and they kind of got the ball rolling on dropper posts, which was a big development going forward. And, I mean, there were things like the height right and so on that existed before that, but they weren't anything close to the same form factor, and that was a big deal. But uh, my number one choice was, like Noah, also the Minion DHF for exactly the same reasons that he said. That thing's been around for 20 years now, hasn't changed that much, and is still 
one of the very best all-round tires out there, and that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's funny. I, I still have a functioning gravity dropper, uh, but but I mean, maybe this is a, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I had, <laughs> I had dropper posts stuck in the next decade uh, because, yeah, I think they're, they're so important, and the gravity dropper, yeah, existed 20 years ago something like that. But, uh, you know, the dropper post didn't really come into their own until, uh, sometime after 2010. I don't know when. Um, and then I did have a couple bikes jotted down. I think like David was saying, yeah, the Enduro was such a, a noteworthy bike. And I actually had the pivot firebird written down. Uh, cause I think it, it was sort of like the next step after the Enduro, and it really made a longer travel bike like that. It was one of the first ones that I could think of that actually went uphill somewhat respectably. Um, and so, you know, it had like a 170 mil travel, something like that on the original Firebird, which wasn't unheard of, but it was a little bit of unheard of to have a bike like that that actually pedaled pretty well. The other one I wrote down, which is... I was kind of waffling on it, but it was the the Honda G Cross downhill bike, which was um, one of the one of the first bikes that we saw that really had a, a functioning gearbox that seemed to actually work well. Um, you know, there were World Cups won on that bike. Never hit production. You could never buy one. There was I don't know a handful of them even ever built, but. It, it has not caught on yet, but I do think that eventually we're going to see uh, gearboxes that actually make sense for a broader segment of the public, uh, the population. You know, we've got Zero that's been building gearbox bikes for a while and a couple other companies that that offer gearbox options. But, but that bike, you know, I think it kind of, sparked some ideas for a lot of people but those ideas are still just simmering out there they haven't quite yeah lit right i mean I, i'm definitely agreeing with you that you kind of have to dock it on influential points yeah. because it didn't really hasn't yet really gone anywhere exactly. and i think the thing that's interesting too is that that bike was sort of a different concept of an gearbox bike than anyone has been pursuing since then in that it, the gearbox on that was basically a normal derailleur just in a box mounted in the middle of the frame more or less whereas the more recent efforts at gearboxes like the pinion on the zeroed and so on are actual meshing gears and sort of more analogous to a car manual transmission than they are to what was going on in that honda Right, uh, right. And, you know, it's like every couple of years we see a new patent pop up from some major company about how they're going to start building, or at least they've patented, some sort of gearbox. And at least some of them are, are similar to that old Honda design. But, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. <laughs> we can talk about that more at the end of this episode. <laughs> Let's move to the last 10 years. Same question. 
let's talk about the most influential bike or bike components from 2010 through 2019. So Noah, let's kind of work our way, you know, up from the bottom of the podium to first place. So what would fall in to your kind of third place award here? Most influential. You know, I, I, I didn't come up with anything that I was really firmly excited about as a third place finisher. I'd probably slot something having to do with like wider rims in there kind of somewhere in the, Oh, I don't know. 2013 time frame. rims kind of went from being like, in the low 20 millimeters or less than 20 millimeter internal widths up to where we are now where kind of a standard rim width is like 30 millimeters and you know that was all an evolution of of tubeless sealants getting to be workable and tires working well with tubeless sealants and tires working well with hooking into the rims, you know, they, a lot of the rim companies kind of altered their bead profiles um, to work better with tires and lock on there better. But but all of that results in more traction and, and harder corners and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that's not a strong third place, but that's where I'm going. Okay. David? Yeah, Noah's answer is a pretty good one. That was something that I thought about in answering a variety of these questions, but didn't end up actually writing down on my list. And what I put in third here was not exactly one specific product, but rather sort of a class of a couple of the really kind of pack leading, again, enduro bikes that really helped push that whole class of thing forward. And the three that I wrote down for that were the, again, the specialized enduro the Santa Cruz Nomad, and the Transition Patrol. The first two of those have been around for pretty much the whole decade. The Patrol came out 2014 or 2015, more towards the middle. But they were kind of three that were three of the most common bikes to really bring that style of bike to a ton of people. And especially the Patrol when it first came out was at the kind of at the forefront ish of relatively aggressive geometry on a bike of that nature and helped drive that whole class of thing forward pretty hard. So those are kind of that sort of bike is one of my top things for the last decade. Okay. Noah, what hit your second spot? Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm going to stay on the component, uh, line of thought here well i'll talk about bikes in a bit but uh the second thing i had on here was uh just one by drivetrains uh, and really you know that started with like sram's xx1 kit and now it's their whole eagle lineup but getting rid of the front derailleur without sacrificing the easier hard gear um that is pretty huge i think it allowed the dropper post lever to go where it should be it allowed frame designs suspension designs to be refined because they weren't having to design the suspension kinematics around uh a front derailleur and different size chain rings it allowed 
tires to get wider and rims to get wider, which I just talked about because you don't have all this junk right next to the tire that's kind of limiting your widths. Um, and so, yeah, at the beginning of it, it was, it was the 11 speed one by drivetrains that SRAM put out, and, and now it's the Eagle uh, kits. And, you know, Shimano is finally caught up and they've got their one by drivetrains. But I, I think that whole movement away from the front derailleur made a, a big difference, not just in the drivetrain, but for the bike as a whole. It's a good one. David, what do you got for number two? For number two, I had the reverb, which was, as we discussed, very much not the first dropper post out there. And frankly, I think is far from the best dropper post out there. But it was it came out in the early 2010s and was the the dropper post that I think it was a ton of people's first dropper post. It was the one that brought those to a ton of people. They respect OE on a billion bikes around that era, and they just made dropper posts ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. David just stole my number one. I had I had dropper posts in general in my top spot, and and the reverb specifically. Like you said, it is uh, far from the best dropper post out there. I think uh, I and probably everyone I know has warranted at least one of them. Um, but it was the first dropper post that came out on the market that was from a major component manufacturer. It was the first uh, dropper post that came out where I think the brands could look at it and say, yes, there's actual warranty support behind this thing. You know, I can, the brands could buy the reverb as part of the, you know, component spec, you know, they could do a SRAM spec bike and included a, 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 a reverb on there. Um, and so that really helped dropper posts go towards widespread acceptance where they're just original equipment on almost every bike and not some sort of cobbled together upgrade. Uh, and I think the dropper posts, the existence of a dropper post on a bike allowed bike geometry to progress in the ways that it has towards a steeper seat tube angle, uh, a longer reach, uh, you know, the longer, lower slacker trend, you know, that doesn't work real well if you've got your seat up at climbing height and stopping at every little roll to like raise or lower your seat kind of sucks. So it was having a dropper post on these bikes that really allowed companies to start messing around with geometry and, and building it in a way that rides well and isn't just a throwback to old road bikes. David, any response to what Noah just said? Yeah. Uh, well, frankly, Noah and I were super strongly in agreement on this one, too, because I had the first-generation XX1 drivetrain as my number one thing. We just swapped one and two, basically. Um, and again, same kind of stuff you said. It was, the, it was kind of the... So that was the first generation of 11-speed mountain bike drivetrains, and that was the moment where cassette range about wide enough for people to widely just go to one by and unlike shimano for quite a while sram was really just 
making a strong effort to ditch the front derailleur, which, as Noah said, had some pretty strong implications for bike frame design and what you could do in terms of suspension and fitting tires and a whole bunch of stuff. And that did a lot to push bikes forward. So that was huge. Yeah. Interesting, though. Noah has dropper posts, number one. You had one buys as number one. But if pressed and we said, okay, over the last 10 years, we either get dropper posts or one by drive trains, we would all be in agreement that we're taking dropper posts and dealing with front derailleurs, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't take that. I mean, and this is in somewhat sort of driven by where I ride, but like my normal rides are climb up several thousand feet and then descend right back down it. And so certainly I'm not eager to give up my dropper post, but for the most part, that would be one quick release swap per fairly long lap and I could live with that. I would take the one by drive train over a dropper if I had to make that choice. Noah? Uh, yeah, no, I, I disagree. I, you'll pry my dropper post out of my cold dead hands. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, this is not to say that I would go back to a front derailleur, but I would put up with an old you know, whatever 10 speed drivetrain that was built around a front derailleur and just take the front derailleur off and deal with suffering up the climbs oh. and spinning out on the descents. So maybe that's a cheating that's answer. That's a cheating answer. That's cheating. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I am happily running XTR 10 speed on my hardtail still, and that's fine. So I am actually yeah. doing that and that's cool. Yeah. That's yeah, a cheating but, answer. I mean, but well, but David's number one answer was SRAM XX1. And if SRAM XX1 had never been invented and I was still running 2012 era XT or whatever, then, you know, that, that's okay. I'll, I mean, I'll suffer, but I'd rather have my dropper post. I'd rather have my reverb with like a kind of spongy air pocket in it that <laughs> sort of turns into a suspension post. I would rather have that spongy reverb than uh than an xx1 kit i don't think that that first generation xx1 drive frame was by any means dialed either like i broke like two or three of those cranks and had a, a variety of issues with it it wasn't that it was the be-all and end-all of drivetrains but rather it was the first one that was really designed to be a one by and that pushed things in that direction rather than it being perfect and flawless and amazing in and of itself. I'm certainly not arguing for that, but just the concept of going for one buy was big. Yeah. It took Shimano and I'm a big fan of Shimano drivetrains and have them on both of my personal mountain bikes. But even I very readily admit that they have dragged their feet to an outrageous degree on, getting rid of front derailleurs and I give SRAM all the credit in the world for pushing that forward. Yeah. SRAM kind of wrecked Shimano for about five years there. Yep. hundred percent. For the record, I'm solidly in the, I'll take a dropper post and deal with a front derailleur, despite the fact I hate front derailleurs. So, but, uh, dropper posts, we don't around here. We don't just pedal up and then scream down. 
So I don't know what triangles you bike on, David, but that's not what we do here. So, yeah, no, I, I certainly agree that that's a somewhat terrain dependent thing. And if I live somewhere else, I might feel differently. All right. Time to talk about best mountain bike of the decade. And then we'll talk about best component of the decade. And when I say component, I mean everything that isn't basically a bike frame for purists out there. But David, what would your award be for best mountain bike or best component of the decade? Okay. So on best bike of the decade, um, the way I kind of approached this one was to think like, so mountain bikes have progressed so much over the last decade that if you want to look at the question in terms of what is the bike that came out in the last decade that I most want to say I'm going to ride exclusively for the next three years or whatever, it's going to be something very recent. And so a more interesting framing of that question is to say what bike was the most standout, impressive thing for its moment in time. And like, it's, it's a very different situation, for example, to, you know, the ski conversation that you guys had on the other version of this podcast, where there's, there doesn't exist a mountain bike that came out at the beginning of the decade that has continued more or less unchanged and is still awesome in the way that the, you know, well, you talked about like the moment Bibby slash Wildcat slash Blister Pro or my personal favorite in this sort of genre, the uh, Blizzard Bodacious that is still around and rules. That The version of that bike just doesn't exist. And so a couple of bikes that really jumped out at me as being phenomenal for their moment were the uh, 2010, I think is when it came out, uh, Turner DHR, the last generation of the DHR was, it had 26 inch wheels, obviously, because that's what mountain bike wheels were in 2010. And the reach is very short by modern standards, but in absolutely every other respect, it is a thoroughly modern and fantastic DH bike. It's got, it had a 63 degree head tube angle, low bottom bracket, long chain stays, it was built beautifully, super burly, super stiff. The suspension was dialed. For 2010, that thing was absolutely incredible. And then another one that really jumped out at me as being a bit ahead of its time in the last 10 years was the first generation of the Gorilla Gravity Mega Trail, which came out in 2012 or 2013 and was just a, an extremely aggressive enduro-y kind of trail bike and at a point where bike manufacturers were still kind of off in the woods a bit with geometry for aggressive bikes like that it stood out dramatically for its moment but uh my number one pick for best bike of the decade takes a slightly different tack and this isn't one that was necessarily stellar for its moment at any given point, but went through several iterations and continued to be really, really good through the entire decade, especially seen through the lens of all of the amazing success it had racing, and that's the Santa Cruz V10. It's been through 
bunch of iterations over the decade, but has continued to be one of the best, most competitive race bikes out there. And obviously the fact that they've had a couple of kind of okay riders on it over that period has helped, but it's been a really good bike for the entirety of the decade. And that's relatively rare. Noah. Yeah, I struggled with this one and, and, and I kind of took a similar, uh, stab at it to David. So I, I, I did not order them because I don't even know how to order this, but the first one I wrote down, which I guess I, I have a personal affection for, was the old Canfield Yelly Screamy, which was my first review that I ever wrote on Blister. I remember. And that was just a bike. That was the first time that I saw a two-niner, hardtail or full suspension, really, that had geometry that didn't seem stupid to me. And it was the first two-niner that I rode that was actually fun in not a strictly cross-country kind of sense. Um, and, you know, Canfield came out with that Yelly, and within a year or so, probably less than a year of that coming out, other companies had already copied it. You know, Kona had their hardtail, uh, Hanzo, and um, some other companies were starting to build kind of the slacker short chainstay two niner. Um, and then within a year or two, that idea had really expanded into a bunch of other brands and full suspension bikes and different travels and that kind of thing. Um, and so there's probably some other bike that came before it that I'm not thinking of, but that was the first one that really caught my eye. Um, you know, the other bike, well, it's not really a bike, but it's more of a person. Uh, Chris Porter has a bunch of different projects. He's done Geometron. He's, he's worked with Nikolai on some stuff. Um, I see him as the guy over the last decade that's really pushed the steep seat tube angle, slack head tube angle, low bottom bracket. Like he's pushed everything that we see the industry moving towards in terms of geometries. He was doing it years ago and generally to an extent that's way more extreme than most of the major brands are doing now. But it's like every year the industry inches closer and closer to embracing the ideas that he's been pushing for quite a while now. Um, so I don't know if if the bigger brands are ever going to get to the point where they're doing geometry numbers that are quite as extreme as what he's doing. But I think there's no question that he and the bikes that he has built have been a pretty big influence throughout the industry. Um, and then, you know, I really felt like I should come up with some bike that was just like a great example of, of like a popular bike that tons of people liked. And I really struggled with that one just because there's been so many good bikes over the years. Um, I had a note about the Kona process lineup, you know, when, when Kona came out with the, couple different process models. They were pretty aggressive as far as geometries go. Um, you know, they probably look a little bit dated now, but I don't think they're terribly dated. 
Um, and that was just like Kona had barely changed their designs in like at least a decade. And so when they came out with a process lineup, it was, it was a big change for them. It was a new suspension design. The bikes looked different. They were super well received. Tons of people were riding them. Everybody seemed to like them. They didn't break, which was nice. So yeah, that, that was just one where a major company kind of took a little bit of a leap of faith on, on moving towards the longer, lower slacker geometry that the entire industry is, is pretty heavily moving towards these days. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the first one that popped into my brain, but I'm pretty sure there could be like 10 other examples that are similar to that. So that's a pretty unsatisfying answer, but that's what I got. <laughs> well, it is interesting. I mean, Kona is the biggest brand to be mentioned. You've been talking about a lot of much smaller companies. And, you know, as you mentioned, David, when we were trying to do this analogous conversation on the, the ski side of things, both in terms of influential skis and best skis i feel like we were coming up with stuff from just bigger brands um not always not exclusively you already mentioned the moment bibby but it is interesting how niche it seems your two answers are and i wonder someone might be out there listening to this thinking really you're not going to mention any mountain bike from specialized nothing from trek well, but David did mention from Specialized, I mean, they had their Enduro back in 05 that was pretty, uh, that was pretty noteworthy back then. And that bike was doing things that I don't think many other bikes, large or small brand, were, were doing. And Specialized has pretty consistently had their Evo models over the years that have been, yeah, it's like their special side project where they get to experiment around. And those bikes have been pretty well received. But no, I don't think I don't think Trek and Giant get a mention for those companies, at least with regard to geometry, uh, tend to follow. Um, with a little bit of credit for the when the Giant Rain, the current iteration of the Giant Rain came out, that you know it it was similar to the Kona process lineup in that it was pretty slack and long. Um, but Giant also revises their bikes about once a decade. So uh, that doesn't really allow for them to keep pace quite as well with uh, changes in the industry. David? I would temper a little bit of what Noah said about the specialized Evo bikes. Apart from the most recent Stump Jumper Evo, that really is a categorically different frame. Like By and large, they've kind of been... They took the same frame, put a coil rear shock on it, and a slightly longer fork, maybe, and called it a different bike. And it was sort of more a different component spec on what was, in fact, the same frame. But the most recent Stump Jumper Evo definitely is a very notably progressive, aggressive geometry bike for a big manufacturer, for sure. And, uh, but I think, yeah, by and large, over the last decade, 
the really big brands have not been the ones pushing more aggressive geometry by and large. And that is one of the very biggest things that has changed about mountain bikes in the last decade. And so, and there's a little bit of an extent to which that's changing. Like Noah said, the latest giant range, pretty aggressive. There's the stump jumper Evo that's getting up there. The most recent Enduro is a huge step forward in terms of the geometry that they're doing on those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly for the bulk of the last decade, the big companies weren't the ones driving those changes. To pin you down, did we answer best component of the decade? David. I had a hard time with that one because I... My criteria were basically I wanted something that, one, felt notably improved upon its competition, and two, didn't have some dramatic flaw that I dislike about it, and wrote a bunch of stuff down. Don't like most of my answers, but the one that I'm closest to happy with is the Fox DHX2, which is comfortably the best air shock I've ever used. I've had several of them on a few different bikes and it's the closest thing to a really good coil shock in terms of performance that I've gotten out of an air shock with the tunability kind of benefits that that brings and so on. First time we've made mention of a fork or shock. Yeah, I think I think the suspension's tricky just because the improvements have been so incremental. Yep. And so it, it's really hard to point to a specific fork or shock that's like, yeah, this one was groundbreaking. It's it's more like, yeah, this one was like 8% better than the one the year before, which was 5% better than the one year before. And so it's it's tough to get really excited about any one model. Yeah, exactly. Like for example, the Fox 36, which I think is one of the best kind of forks in that category out there still. The original kind of overall architecture for that has been around since the mid-2000s. And, you know, they've tweaked it. They've made it lighter. They've changed the damper around a little bit. But at least until a couple of years ago when they went to the new Grip 2 damper, that RC2 damper was at least kind of, in terms of the overall architecture, basically the same thing that it had been since 2005, I think. Which isn't to say that it wasn't good, but like Noah said, it was sort of, it's been a matter of very incremental, gradual improvements rather than any big sea change that has been a major game changer in suspension. Okay, Noah, time for your answer so i mean i'm really tempted to just say the dhx wow (laughs) uh mostly because you know we're like wrapping it back around from the beginning of the conversation because it's been around forever but it's still great uh but i'm not going to say the dhx that's a little too easy um i think the one i would go with is the race face branded version of the Fox transfer post. Uh, because like we talked about earlier, dropper post, super important. I, you will buy my dropper post out of my cold dead hands. 
the Fox transfer is the first one I've had that has pretty consistently worked well. I have never warrantied one. I've spent a lot of time on them, um, but I dislike the Fox lever, which is why I went with the Raceface branded one, because I think the Raceface lever is great. I fully endorse that answer. I own two transfers that are going on three years old, haven't touched either of them. They're both still just trucking along, and the Fox lever sucks real bad. So, uh, <laughs> yep. Totally agreed with Noah on that one. Okay, I have um, the uh, wolf. I have wolf tooth levers on both of mine because, yeah. again, the fox ones are terrible. Yeah, the wolf tooth leather levers. I love those things too. But if you buy the race face branded version, then it comes with essentially a wolf tooth lever, uh, but you don't have to pay extra. <laughs> yeah, I bought both of mine before the race face version existed, so that was yeah, sort of yeah. the option at that point. But okay. I fully agreed with your take. Okay, nice. All right, moving on. I didn't want to entirely exclude questions about bike apparel or helmets or body armor and and pads. And so let me ask you guys, is there anything you would want to mention if I ask about the most important or influential apparel or helmet or armor developments of the decade um well so i got i've got two things the first uh viscoelastic foam made knee pads that you pedal in a lot more comfortable uh there's you know tons of different companies are using it some better than others uh but yeah just that squishy foam that that hardens up when you fall on it uh for any kind of knee pad that's that's going to get pedaled uphill in it's great uh, the other thing that I'm a big fan of is bibs with pockets in them. And so I think specialized with their SWAT bibs will try to take credit for that. Although I'm fairly convinced that they are not the first ones to have put bibs in or uh, pockets in bibs. Uh, but either way about it, the SWAT bibs are great. Uh, I have a bunch of pairs of them and yeah, it means I can go for a ride and, cram a bunch of stuff in my bibs and not carry a backpack and that makes me happy david yeah so totally with noah on the vistelastic foam stuff being super cool but uh i discounted that because it's been around a bit longer than the last decade 661 for sure was doing it before then and i think Pac also um and so on the carrying stuff without having to wear a backpack front i just went with fanny packs Obviously, those have also existed for longer than the last decade, but mountain biking specific ones that have kind of decent suspension that keeps them planted on your back and doesn't move around a ton is a relatively recent development, and I am all in. Even if they look super dorky, don't care. They're more comfortable and way better than a backpack, and that matters way more. So uh, I'm going with fanny packs. Okay. Do we want to single out any specific products that we've you know we've you've now just you both kind of talked mostly about categories anything get nominated for best specific product of the decade in these realms the uh best specific product in terms of apparel armor etc that i wrote down was the troy lee d3 helmet which 
I think actually came out at the very end of 2009, so it's maybe cheating by a few months, but it's just, even though it's now 10 years old, is still one of the very best designed, most comfortable, best looking, best fitting full face helmets that I've dealt with ever. Uh, and the fact that it's done that for the entirety of the decade is pretty wild. So that's my apparel armor helmet of the decade for sure. Noah. Yeah. I mean, well, I said the swap bibs. I like David, David's answer on the fanny packs. Uh, cause yeah, I'm, I'm a fanny pack aficionado myself. Uh, I usually ride in a Evoc, um, what is it, a Pro Race, I think is the name of the model. But yeah, the Evoc Fanny Pack, it's great. I like it. Um, I, I will also say, um, just before you go, uh, I did a review of a, a Henty Enduro Pack, I think it was called, a, a year or three ago. And it's sort of, it's like a fanny pack that they put some shoulder straps on, but the shoulder straps are just kind of there to help keep things from swinging around. That thing's great. I use it all the time uh, for any bigger ride where a little fanny pack just isn't quite enough. Um, so it's like this random small company out of, I think, New Zealand or maybe Australia. Um Thanks for doing all that research before the this conversation, Noah. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought of this because Fanny Packs wasn't on my list, so I'm building off of David's list. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm just kind of running with it. Uh-huh. You should anybody listening to this who's curious should go on blisterreview.com and search for Henty. Does that make you happier, Jonathan? A little bit. Not that happy, <laughs> but a little bit. Okay. Anyways, it's cool. You should totally buy one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What I was going to say uh, was that the uh, Evoc Hip Pack 3-liter race that Noah was talking about, I like a lot. I have one also. Uh, for a relatively large fanny pack that you can carry a lot of stuff in, I think it is remarkably good at sort of staying put and not bouncing around like crazy. But it's substantially bigger than I want for probably 80% of my rides, and so... I'm using the uh, high above lookout a lot more of late, which is way smaller. Can't carry nearly as much in it, but for two, three, four hour kind of rides, it's enough for me. And I'm pretty high on that one right now. Last question. Obviously, we've already touched on several of these things, you know, in this conversation, but just to tie a bow on it, let's recap in your opinions, the biggest trends or changes of the past 10 years? Noah? I mean, this is super easy. It's just geometry changes. Longer, lower, slacker. Steeper seed tube angles, slacker head tube angles. The bottom brackets have kind of stopped getting lower for the most part. I think we've kind of reached reached the bottom there to some extent. Um, but yeah, I mean that that was the biggest change. If if you compare the geometry on a 2010 bike to a 2019 bike, they look a lot different. I think it was the Gorilla Gravity Trail Pistol 
that I reviewed earlier this season, and their smallest size that they make is about the same size as a large specialized from just like three or four years ago. Okay, so Noah's going with geometry, biggest change of the past 10 years. David? Yeah, absolute no-brainer, same thing. Uh, Not even close. Interesting that the word carbon has not come up one time in this conversation. I thought about uh, talking about carbon in, in the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about the prior decade, which is really when... I mean, you know, carbon bikes existed back in the 90s. Um, So it's sort of been a pretty gradual onset of of how commonplace carbon is. Uh, It's certainly become much more ubiquitous over the last 10 years. Um, It's certainly made things more expensive. I'm hesitant on saying that it has made things that much better. Yep, exactly. That was why I didn't really bring it up at all, is that it's become more common, but the list of things that has done vastly more to make bikes actually better ahead of carbon is huge. And that little bit of weight loss that you get from carbon odds and ends here and there is all well and good, but there have been so many more substantial, more important changes in mountain bikes in the last 10 years that carbon is just buried way down on that list. All right. Well, guys, way to recap the past 10 years in like under an hour. Of course, this is the part where we will again invite our listeners to decide how good or bad of a job you have done here and you know go easy on these guys but um if you have other thoughts feel free to leave your comments in the comments section to the show notes of this episode on the website and uh let's see what you guys think are proper answers to some of these questions and then we're going to be coming back with david and noah next week. And while we've been having them here, look at the past 10 years. Next week, we're going to look at the next 10 years and get some of their gear predictions and predicted trends for this next decade. So that's what we've got going in the next episode. And uh, I'm looking forward to that one. So David and Noah, good to have you both on air together in the same conversation and man we get to turn around and do it again next week how good is my life it's it's pretty good <laughs> yeah can't wait gonna be amazing <laughs> yeah. all right guys good to talk to you we'll do it again real soon talk to you soon all right catch you later that's it for this edition of bikes and big ideas thanks to noah and david for the conversation thanks to luke alley for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening And if you enjoyed this conversation, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, share this episode with your friends, and take just 30 seconds to leave us a nice little rating in iTunes, because that really helps the cause. Until next time, please take good care out there. We will talk to you again next week.